0: In 2022, I would love for you to join my Patreon group. I offer at least three bonus episodes a month. There is a Facebook group where we all chat books, and we are currently reading advanced copies of books and chatting with the authors pre-publication. I just added another read, about which I am so excited. For April, we will be reading Linwood Barclay's new fantastic thriller, Take Your Breath Away. Thanks to those that already participate, and I hope you will consider joining too. Today, I am chatting with Erica Roebuck about Sisters of Night and Fog. Erica is the national best-selling author of The Invisible Woman, Hemingway's Girl, Call Me Zelda, Fallen Beauty, The House of Hawthorne, and Receive Me Falling. She is a contributor to the anthology Grand Central Postwar Stories of Love and Reunion and to the Writer's Digest Essay Collection, Author in Progress. In 2014, Roebuck was named Annapolis Author of the Year, and she resides there with her husband and three sons. I hope you enjoy our conversation.
1: Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.
0: Welcome, Erica. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. I am so glad you're here. I always love chatting books with you, and I can't wait to talk more about Sisters of Night and Fog.
2: Thank you. And I love your podcast. It's, it's one of my go-to. I love hearing about other authors and their processes. So I'm really happy to be back.
0: Well, I'm happy you're back as well. So why don't we do what we normally do and start out with you just giving a quick summary of the book for those that won't have read it yet. Sure. The Sisters
2: of Night and Fog is the true story of two remarkable women in World War II, an American teacher who joins an allied pilot escape network with her French husband, and a Franco-British widow and mother who becomes a secret agent to avenge her husband's death. Um, and their clandestine deeds with the resistance come to a staggering halt at Ravensbrook Concentration Camp, where we get to understand the true depths of their courage.
0: So this is a really sad story, an important story, but a sad story. Mm-hmm. Was that hard for you? I mean, did it stay with you long after you got up from writing and did you have a hard time kind of separating yourself from it?
2: I did. Um, I didn't plan on writing another novel set in World War II, but as I was writing The Invisible Woman about Virginia Hall, I kept coming across more and more remarkable stories that hadn't been told or hadn't been told recently. Um, And so I'd been finding things constantly about Violet Jabo and about Virginia de Albert Lake, the two women who are the protagonists of sisters. And I ultimately decided I was just going to write about Virginia, the American, because Violet's story, without revealing too much, has some Tragic elements that I didn't want to tackle. Well, she was relentless. I dreamt about her three or four times. And I kept on finally telling her in dreams, I just I can't write your story. And then I was reading an interview um, that Virginia D'Albert Lake did. And she was speaking about the other women she was imprisoned with. And she talked about the one who rallied everyone who kept them physically strong so that they could be mentally strong. And it was Violet. And so I finally, I gave in, I I knew I had to tell her story. And then she, she came to me in another dream at the end of it when I decided to, and she said, my story's not sad because I knew what I was getting into and I'm proud of what I did and I want people to know about it.
0: I think that is just wild that not only did she come to you in one dream, but it was like three or four dreams.
2: Yeah, it was. And some of them were revisiting certain places in her life where I actually was her, and some of those are what made me decide I'm not going to tell your story. But then ultimately, I had to. So when your subjects speak, you have to listen. And um, she spoke very loudly and very clearly.
0: And I'm glad. Absolutely. And I think it's wonderful that you did tell her story. And I think it's just, I don't know what you want to call it, kismet or whatever, that you were planning to write Virginia's story. And then you come across an interview where she talks about Violette.
2: Yes, and what became really nice was that the two women's stories—they're completely different. They come from very different walks of life. It's a bit of an evolutionary process for both of them, and how they get involved and why they get involved. But when they come together, it really turned out to be sort of like a diamond, where if you turn it one way, you saw this facet, and that way, another. Um, And I do like to write about how ordinary people, when when we're called to do something extraordinary, that grace rises to help us. So having the two stories together, I think showed that better than just Virginia's.
0: I think that's right. That's something that I really liked about your last book, The Invisible Woman, about Virginia Hall. And I continue to think about it is there were so many everyday people who just rose to the challenge. And it's just sort of hard to imagine that these days, sometimes with all the crazy things we're going through and how upset people get about this minor stuff. And then you go back to World War II in both The Invisible Woman and Sisters of Night and Fog, and you have these everyday people who are doing just amazing, courageous things.
2: Yes, I find it very hopeful. And I, you know, I think that People, when, they, when they're face-to-face with others, really do tend to rise to the occasion. And it, just, it was a good reminder of it. Also, I felt a deeper connection to the story because when I was beginning, it was at the beginning of lockdown in 2020. So as movement was being restricted, as we didn't have as much access to different groceries and things like that, it was just sort of a small thing, but it helped me connect to what it was like once France was under occupation, exactly what that meant. And once war rationing began... I really I understood how they felt to a certain extent. So it was it felt
0: relevant. That is so interesting. I hadn't even thought about it that way.
2: Yeah, and one of one of the lines that Violet says in the book is she's pacing around the backyard and you know, all of this is just beginning and she's like, What are we gonna do if this lasts until winter? Well, of course the war goes on to last five more years and I think back to the beginning of COVID, oh it's just six weeks, you
0: know. <laughs> <laughs> Here we are. Yes, exactly. Well, pairing them together must have been really interesting and probably took some work. But tell me about your research. As I was reading, I just couldn't even imagine how much research you had to do.
2: Well, with the research, I had done so much for The Invisible Woman. So I had this really nice context already, this foundation in place, especially for Violet with the Special Operations Executive. So I knew a lot there, and I had read so much about her from that. But there was already a a great big leg of it done. And then there was another, one of the books I'd read was about American women involved in the resistance in every capacity in World War II. It's an out-of-print book that I was able to get my hands on, and that's where I was introduced to Virginia D. Albert Lake. And then come to find out, someone published her diary and memoir several years ago, which was obviously incredibly helpful. So there were a lot of resources, and, and I had done quite a bit of it before I even wrote a single word.
0: Oh, that's nice. That must have made it a lot easier. Yeah, What about the format? The starting in, I think it's 1995 and flashing back. How did you decide to do that?
2: Well, I wanted an element. I always like to try to connect the past to the present in a way to frame the story. As a reader, I appreciate that. It doesn't begin in the present day, but into a a closer to the present day where there's a woman and she's traveling with a companion back to Ravensbrook for a remembrance ceremony. The reader comes to understand it's going to be women from the story in the past and so it sets up a little bit of a question in the mind right from the beginning of who is this how did she make it through how did she even get there in the first place so it just creates some sort of natural tension and elements and questions in the reader's mind so i think that's a it's a good framing device but also it allows us to connect more to the people of the past
0: and just trying to imagine if you had spent all that time at Ravensbrook to go back that, that's so hard to imagine. And I can't even fathom what that was like. And then yesterday was, I think, International Holocaust Remembrance mm-hmm. Day. And so on the news last night, there were several people who had done just that. And it really made me think about your book because they had gone back and visited. And I just, if I had been through something like that, I don't know that I could go back.
2: Yes. And I spoke to a child of one of the women in the book. And this child said that it was not a good trip, that there were things that, We're good about it, but it didn't really provide as much closure as it did anxiety. It it brought forth a lot of that anxiety that had sort of been suppressed for many years. So I do write it a bit more hopeful in my story and with more closure, but that would be a fictional element because it was deeply distressing.
0: I can only imagine. Let's talk about pairing the women's stories again. So they were drastically different. How did that go for you, kind of alternating their stories and trying to figure out how to connect them?
2: Well, one of the things, you know, I love writing different characters because whatever my mood is on a given day is how I'm able to harness the emotion of the character. And this was really enjoyable because they were such different women. To crawl into the skin of one one day was just a completely different experience from the other day. So I I found it very engaging and I couldn't wait to sit down and and see who I was going to write. Some days I would just ping pong back and forth. Other times I would write a large... Section in one character's voice and then the other, and reweave them later. Every day, I just, I never know exactly what's going to happen when I sit down to write. And that's part of why I find
0: it so engaging. That's a great way to look at it because it kind of gives you options as you're sitting down. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I know you had dreams ahead of time, but I know as I was reading this story that if I had been writing it, it would have been really hard for me to shake it off. I mean, did you just feel it hanging over you or? Was writing it down kind of cathartic and it let you express it in some way that it didn't just hang over you the whole time?
2: Well, I mean, writing it out does get it out. So that is a good thing. But when I entered, you know, the book is told in three parts and the third part is set at at Ravensbrook. And that was, um, it was brutal. And it was some of the most difficult writing that I've ever had to do. And it aligned with National Novel Writing Month, November. So I basically just told my family, I'm going to be going to my writing cottage every day for four or five hours, and I'm going to be inhabiting the lives of women in a concentration camp. So basically the month of November, I'm out. Like I I don't have much to give and whatever I have, I'm giving it to the story. And thank goodness, my guys, I have three sons and my husband, they they have been through this with me before and they are so supportive and they just know, and they know when they look at me, "Hmm, probably don't need to bugger about this today.
0: That's what I was just wondering, because I thought, especially like you're talking about the the hardest part at Ravensbrook, it would just be hard to sort of leave that behind to get back to, okay, let me fix dinner or let me help you with this or whatever. So you have a writing cottage. Is it at your house?
2: It is not. It's not. So my husband and I have been looking for a little fixer-upper on the Severn River near where we live for 20 years. And we finally found it right around the time of COVID. It was such a blessing because it gave us a place to go and to fix things and work and it's right on the river. So it's really um, a beautiful setting. The house itself is, is very tiny and strange, but I do end up, that's where I go when I can't write at home, you know, so I go back and forth and it's two miles from my house where I live. So it's a real, been a real blessing.
0: Oh, that is a real blessing. And like you said, kind of get away from everything.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, what do you hope your readers take away from the book?
2: You know, I want them to see that hope endures, you know, the human condition. I think we are wired for hope and we unlearn it as we get older. But when you see the circumstances, these people go through and you see that not only did they survive, but in some ways they thrived and that they found levels of humanity and love and courage that they just, they didn't know they had, and they wouldn't have known they had if they hadn't gone through hell, to be perfectly honest. I um, and then for... What happens, you know, for those who come out on the other side and what they're able to bring to the world and what they've done for the world, I think that's really inspiring. And so I hope that I always want my stories to inspire.
0: I think it would be very difficult coming out on the other side, and you portray this in the book, but the guilt of being a survivor, mm-hmm. just constantly reflecting back or trying not to reflect back on what you went through, the awfulness of the people, like the guards and people like that who are keeping them captive, it would be very hard to move past that, I think.
2: It is you know one of the things you know obviously i've never endured anything remotely close to it i can only access the certain areas of trauma in my life you know two of those are one was my my oldest son sustained an almost mortal injury in a hockey game and then one is the death of my mother and sort of walking through that with her and the process of grief though it's very different in all of the ways it comes are it is a process that's the same no matter what you're grieving so whether you're grieving something you wanted to happen and it hasn't or a person or, you know, all of it. I definitely have experience and all readers have experience with grief and walking people through it. So, uh, you know, I try even in the, the, the harrowing things and the terrible things that if people mourn what is lost, they're able to move forward rather than just trying to skip on past it.
0: That's a very good point. And I think initially, probably people were trying to skip on past it. But over time, they worked their way through the stages of grief.
2: Sure. Yeah. And that generation, they always called the greatest generation and, and they really, they were very special.
0: <laughs> for sure. But they also really kept it inside for a long time. I mean, that was sort of the way it was during that time frame, and it probably took a while for some of them to move on past it and to try to deal with it.
2: Absolutely. And some of them didn't. You know, I know in my own family, there were two suicides um, and these were veterans of one of the Great War and one of World War Two, father and son. And, um, you know, there's some people that they don't move past it. Um, I know others who I've interviewed who just were never able to fully leave the war behind them. So these are the hopeful stories, but there's a lot of darkness with it too. It just shows that, you know, what war does to humans and humanity, there are some irreparable things that come from it.
0: Absolutely. I'm interested in your title and how it came about. I remember that you did a poll early on with this one, right? With some different ideas. (laughs) I
2: did. And I didn't want to because my title for this book, and it always has been, and it always will be is a woman's war because women's wars look different from men's very often. So in my mind, it's always going to be that, but smarter people than I am in marketing and sales and publicity feel like uh, a title that can be used on any number of books isn't good enough. It has to be more specific. So we went to the drawing board, we looked at a thousand titles and you know, people don't want girl in the title as much and I'm um, just trying to find different things and finally we came up with a few ideas, some of them were lines from songs and so forth. And then I think my editor and I were the ones that put this together, Sisters of Night and Fog. And then we added it out to the polling and it won. <laughs> so that's you know, the title process is messy, but um I really I love where it ended up. But I do also think of this book as a woman's war.
0: What you need to call it is Sisters of Night and Fog, Colon, a women's war.
2: The line comes up a few times in the book as what women are saying to each other and about each other. So um it still stays in there. But what I do like about Night and Fog is for those who don't know exactly what that is, it does imply sort of the clandestine spy aspects of the book and the way the women have to operate in the shadows. But if For those who do know what it is, Night and Fog was Hitler's decree to make so-called enemies of Germany disappear without a trace. And that was his mission with Ravensbrück and other concentration camps who housed resistors, was to make them disappear, including files about them. So that is more what the reference is to in the title.
0: I really like the title because I feel like it has two meanings. One, just what you were talking about, Hitler's campaign but also the idea that spies are operating under the cover of Night and Fog, and so it seemed like the perfect title for me. But I thought it was very fun that you did the poll, because I bet readers felt very invested.
2: Yeah, I remember years ago, um, Elizabeth Gilbert did a poll for, I think it was one of the titles of her books, or it may have actually even been the cover. I can't remember, but I voted and whatever I voted for won and I felt like I had a part in the book. <laughs> so it just made me more invested in it. So I think it's fun whenever readers can be involved um, and that kind of stuff is fun. So wherever you can get that involvement, it's
0: good. Absolutely. All the readers who voted were excited and will now want to read your book because they participated in the title pick. Exactly. Now onto the cover, you know, me and cover. So I love your cover. Can we talk about how it came about?
2: Yes, I love this cover, too. I I can't stop looking at it. And every time it comes up, I gasp because it looks so cinematic. But it's interesting, my editor, she wrote to me when the covers were due. And she said, I can't show you anything that I have, because it's just not quite right. And that had never happened before. Normally, we kind of look at them and debate them. And she just said it isn't quite right. So I told them something cinematic, and they will turn it around quickly. And then after that, this came through into my email inbox. And as it unveiled itself, I really did gasp. So I don't know what was the first uh, draft of of this cover, but they really nailed it on this one. I think the only things that we had to change was maybe adding a beret to one of the women to distinguish the two of them, because Violet often wears this purple beret.
0: I just love the colors in the background, and it really does evoke night and fog. Yes. And we're just, and the
2: subtle nods to Violet and Purple and, you know, I just, Royalty, her mother's name was Rain. I just like little fun things like that, that book clubs, if they think about it, can, can dissect.
0: Absolutely. I was so excited to see that Sisters of Night and Fog got a Publishers Weekly starred review. That must have been so exciting for you.
2: Oh, it is! I'm so grateful. Uh, when you work on these books with these characters, um, and then you're you know you're exchanging with your editor and your agent, but it's just this little world that you're in. And so to get that kind of recognition is just it's so gratifying. I'm really thankful for it.
0: Absolutely, and yours came early. I always think it's really nice when it's early like that because it really helps. I'm sure with all the pre publicity.
2: Oh, absolutely! We were shocked because um, it's been getting reviews have been coming closer and closer to pub date. So it wasn't even on my radar that it would be coming in so so early. So when it did, my publicist emailed me. We were all so excited.
0: Yes, I was too. I was like, "Yay, Erica! That's awesome!" <laughs> Thank you. Well, do you have a favorite character in this book? Oh,
2: it's like saying, "Do you have a favorite child?" I love both of them for different reasons. I found Virginia to be more relatable because I too, I think would take a lot more. (laughs) I, I like things safe and tidy and I follow rules. So I think it would be harder for me to get to the place that Virginia did. So I identify with her more. However, Violet, who is a wild child, she's always wild. She's always daring, adventurous, flippant. I admire her so much and I get such a kick out of her. Uh, so she, I find very endearing. So that's, that's how I'd break it down. What about any of the side characters? Well, a lot of the side characters are real people. And um, I don't want to do too many spoilers, but all of the, the men in Beelitz groups are real. And many of them have memoir or biography written about them. And I included some of those in the reading list at the end because they were all so fantastic I just want readers to keep reading about these people. I don't want to say who in particular because it would contain a plot spoiler, but check out the reading list and go further with it.
0: I also like that you did an author's note and then you listed what had really happened in history or if you had combined a couple of characters and kind of just went through the timeline. I thought that was wonderful.
2: Yeah, I think for historical fiction, I really appreciate when authors do that. I'm going to go Googling anyway, but it's nice to have a place to start, especially when I want to know what's fiction and then what's, what's fact. One of the other things that my editor came up with, so many times in the writing of the book, particularly in Violet's section, she said, did that really happen? And I would say, yes. So all these comment bubbles went back and forth And so she said, you need to include a list at the end that says things that actually happened to Violet or that she did that are real because they seem so preposterous. And so I did that. So that was kind of fun to do.
0: I laughed when I read that because, you know, you always talk about (laughs) truth being stranger than fiction. And I could just see your editor saying like, did this really happen? And so I love that you included those things and that they actually had happened.
2: Yeah, that was direct from comment bubbles in revisions. This is not real. This couldn't be real. She did not. (laughs) Yeah,
0: That's pretty funny. Well, what about what you're working on in the future? Are you working on anything now that will come out later?
2: I am. So um, I I certainly hope so. So I enjoyed the novels about World War II spies, but I feel like for my mental health, I need to go in another direction. And this time I've become very captivated by one of the most studied artifacts in history that I will not name yet, and just some of the interesting things that have come up around it. So this is going to be more about an artifact. Um, It's going to be set in different time periods and in all different time periods. So it's a multi-period novel, and this artifact connects generations. But at its heart, it's really going to be a love story within a love story. So that's what I'm working on, and
0: it's it's just been an absolute joy. I am so intrigued. Good. So you write at your writing cottage sometimes, Mm -hmm. but day to day, do you have a general writing pattern? Do you set out certain hours, a number of words? How does that work for you?
2: I do. I'm definitely a creature of habit. When my sons are in school, it's my work time. So after I drop them off and I deal with my email and everything first to get that out of the way, clear the decks, and then I start to write. So I'm usually writing creatively between 9 a.m. and 1 p.m. every day. And sometimes it looks a little different. Sometimes it's more of revisions or research or writing. It just depends on the day and what it calls for. And I do that at my desk at home because I have, you know, dozens of research books all around me and I don't want to transport those. When I get to the revision, when the editing stages start to come and I have to do a lot of reading out loud to make sure things make sense, that's when I usually head over to the cottage because I can pace and read out loud and nobody's around and it's a different environment. So my brain works a little differently there. So that's how I usually handle that. And then after I'm sitting at my desk all day, I physical fitness is very important to my day. I usually process what I've been writing, so as soon as I'm done, I walk. So I walk a lot, miles and miles, and usually that's where I work out all of my plot issues and angst and worries and anything along there. But that's usually how my day is structured when my when my boys are in school.
0: And after you walk and you've had some epiphany or some idea that something needs to be changed, do you race back and make a bunch of notes? Well, I have
2: my phone with me and I'm typing them in my notes the whole way. So yesterday I'm on the bike path. I was about two miles from my house and I was listening to a podcast about writing. It's called, I think it's called State of Wonder. I'll have to find it. But um, she just explores various forms of art and reflects on them. And something unlocked a problem in my manuscript that had nothing to do with what I was listening to seemingly. And the whole climax came to me. And I started crying on the bike path. And the person who walked by me must have thought I was a lunatic, but that happens (laughs) all the time. So I just quickly sent that note to myself. So
0: (laughs) that makes much more sense. Because if not, I would be afraid that by the time I got back, I'd forgotten half of what had come to me. Oh, yes. I would never rely on my memory ever. I love that, though, that you walk and kind of work it out that way. That's a great way to do it. Put it aside. It still stays Mm -hmm. with you, but you're just kind of trying to do other things, but it's slowly percolating.
2: Yes, and I do. I follow Hemingway's advice. He said, always leave the scene when the action is rising. And then that way, when you come back the next day, you can just step right in and get to work. You're not sitting there staring up at the ceiling thinking, now what do they do? You know, so that is, it's unbelievably helpful writing advice and it
0: works really well. Oh, that's so interesting. I'm not sure I've ever heard that before. Yeah. And probably a lot of people do it, but they just haven't verbalized it. Mm -hmm. Now, when you write, do you edit as you go or do you just write, 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 and then go back and have an editing process or is it somewhere in the middle?
2: Um, I usually just go, go, go. With the first draft, I have to get it out on the page as messily and as quickly as possible. Uh, so it, it is messy. I might read back through what I did the day before very quickly, skim, and then I move forward when I'm drafting. Uh, there's enough time with editing and revision to to make sense of it all. But I really try to get that first draft out as quickly as possible.
0: That makes sense. I think that would be easier than trying to constantly revise because I just don't know that I'd get very far forward because I'd still be revising.
2: Oh, sure. And, and you definitely fall into the trap sometimes and you start obsessing about sentences and then four hours are gone and you've added nothing to your manuscript. And you know, time is just so precious. I can't operate that way.
0: That makes sense. And I think everybody does it differently. And as long as you can find what works best for you, that works well. Absolutely.
2: And for me too, the drafting phase, I feel in my day-to-day life, I feel very fractured by it. I don't know if that's the right word. But because I do leave in the middle of the action, I don't necessarily know what's going to happen. It's always tapping my shoulder. And if I draw that out too long, I think I would drive everybody crazy who I live with. (laughs) Revision and editing, all of that is much easier to step away from. But drafting, it's almost like method acting where you have to really immerse yourself in it. So I don't, it's best if I do that quickly.
0: (laughs) Yes. And you don't stay distracted by it. Exactly. Well, what about what you've read recently that you really liked?
2: Okay, so I'm always reading, you know, nonfiction, spiritual books and fiction at the same time. It's why my brain is probably so chaotic. But um, I just finished a spiritual memoir called Finding Frasadi about a young man from Turin, um, who was just a really uncommon young man, in the fact that he had a very deep understanding of spirituality at a young age. So that was um, a very inspiring memoir. And he died young of polio, but he lived a really full and interesting life. Um, And then in in terms of research books, I can't tell you because then that would reveal what I'm writing on. But for fiction, I have two recommendations. One, I just read the classic Rosamund Pilcher's Winter. And if you haven't read Winter, it it is like wrapping yourself in a warm blanket. It is such a perfect wintertime book. She writes these epic family dramas. If you've ever read The Shell Seekers or anything else by her, it's that exact same feel. I love it. And then I read something that just came out, The Last Rose of Shanghai, which um, is set in Japanese-occupied Shanghai. There's a Chinese businesswoman who falls in love with a Jewish refugee from Germany. And it's just a place in World War II that I knew nothing about. And I was so fascinated, I could not put that book down.
0: That one sounds really good. And I think I remember seeing you post about it.
2: Yes. Okay, good.
0: Well, I'll have to add that to my list. And I have read The Shell Seekers, but it's been many, many years.
2: Okay. Well, the weather's cold, although I don't know if it's cold where you are, but you should read winter.
0: (laughs) It's not as cold as where you are, but it's been chilly. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, as always, Erica, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about Sisters of Night and Fog and for coming on the Thoughts from a Page podcast.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I love talking books with you.
0: Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at thoughtsfromapage. From a Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed today can be purchased at the Conversations From a Page bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time.